favorite books is by John Ortberg, and he begins the book um, that's called Soul Keeping with a parable. And I've read it at some point here on a Sunday, and I thought I would read it again. The, the parable has a title, and the title of the parable is called The Keeper of the Stream. There once was a town in the Alps that straddled the banks of a beautiful stream, and the water was clear as crystal. Children laughed and played beside it, and you could see the rocks and the rainbow trout that swarmed at the bottom of the stream. High in the hills, far beyond anyone's sight, lived an old man who served as keeper of the springs. He had just been hi- he had been hired long ago. Not that anyone could remember the time that he was he wasn't there. He would travel from one spring to another, removing branches, leaves, or debris that might pollute the water. His work was unseen. One year, the town council decided they had better things to do with the money, and the unseen stream cleaner was a luxury they could no longer afford, so the old man left his post. High in the mountains, the spring was untended. Twigs, branches, and worse muddied the waters. Silt, silt compacted the creek bed. Farm waste turned parts of the stream into stagnant bogs. For a time, no one in the village noticed, but after a while, the water wasn't the same. It no longer had the crisp scent, the dew which drew the children to play in it. Some people began to grow ill. Everyone noticed the loss of the sparkling beauty which used to flow between the banks of the streams that fed the town. The life of the village depended on the stream, and the life of the stream depended on the keeper. The council reconvened, and the old man was rehired, and after some time, the springs were clean, the stream was pure, the children played in it again, illness was replaced by health, and the village came back to life. The life of the village depended on the health of the stream. The stream is your soul, and you are the keeper. The stream is your soul, and you are the keeper. I have two things on my mind this morning. First, and most importantly, I hope I have what on my mind what the Apostle Paul actually had on his mind when he wrote these words. And the second thing I have on my mind is uh, that we're at the end of 2020. What a year. And when you're at the beginning or an end of a year, beginning and end of a year, it happens at the same time in case you didn't know, um, it's always a good time to reflect, to, to look backwards and to, to look forward. And so the Apostle Paul in this particular passage, his main focus from back from in verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, 27, is your manner of life. And he's just continuing with that focus. Uh, he, he said this, if you notice in, um, in verse 27, only, only. We talked about this last week. Above all, if, any, if you only just have time or energy for one thing, examine carefully your manner of life. And I might replace that this morning with examine the stream of your soul. And so I want us to look at this passage and think about those things this morning. First of all, you notice in verse 12 the word therefore. So right away, you know, you have to ask the question, well, what is that word therefore? I mean, it's therefore for some purpose. And Paul has, 
has already built a foundation that he needs the reader to make sure they remember. And that reader, and it's not going to be surprising to you if you've been in this series, is going to go back to verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 in chapter 2. This is the foundation. This is everything for the Apostle Paul. And he says this, thinking, help, trying to help the people in, in, in Philippi and helping us today, this is supposed to be your mindset. You're supposed to have this kind of mind in you, and it, and it is yours in Christ. And then he tells you what Jesus did, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account, account equality with God a thing to be grasped. So this is our model. You could rightfully own something, but that's not the main purpose of a life. The purpose is to begin to let go of things. Verse 7, to make yourself nothing or to empty yourself into a form of a servant. And being found in that form, Christ humbled himself. He became obedient even to the point of death, obedient to death on a cross. So this is the center of the universe. Everything holds together for Paul from this. So when he's talking about his manner of life, when he's trying to project onto us a manner of life like Jesus, this is the center. And every kind of manner of our life circles around understanding this about Jesus. Uh, the Apostle John says it in a different way. We love because, what does it say? He first loved us. See, the reason we love, the reason we have in, the, in our life love, in our uh, pattern of life is love, is because something's already happened to us. Some foundation has been laid. And I want us to notice there's two reactions to Jesus' manner of life. I, I hope you picked up on it. There's two therefores. So this is shown to us, and then in verse 9, there's a therefore for God. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. God has seen this in Jesus, and he exalts. He, he takes this humility and says, this is what I exalt in heaven. So if you want to know what God values, it's this right here. What does God exalt in heaven? Humility. The, the last here in heaven will be what? First. So what God honors, what his economy operates around is people who serve, people who are humble. So he has a first reaction, and then we're supposed to have this reaction in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, in other words, the people who are reading this letter, the, the congregants, those people who love Jesus, they're supposed to have a particular reaction to what Christ has done. They're supposed to have a particular kind of manner of life. And I want to use just these two two phrases this morning to help us see what our manner of life should be and also to help us evaluate the stream of our soul. Here's, here's how we're supposed to respond to this great life that's been given to us. And we look at it, and I want to ask you to think you're the keeper of the stream of your soul. If we could look at it today, if it could run in front of us, what, what would it look like? First of all, verse 12, work out, work out, work out your own salvation. Now, right away, you might get a little antsy about this, and you might say to me, well, I'm pretty sure in Ephesians 2, 
The Apostle Paul said this, For it is by grace you have been saved, not by works. So what does he mean by work out? And I would say that you would need to notice that Paul is not telling us to work for our salvation. That would be quite a different phrase. He's saying work out your salvation. Very significant difference. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you. So we're responsible to work out the things that God is placing in us. He's, he's moving in us through his word, through his Holy Spirit. And, and our job is to work that out. We have a, a responsibility. We have some agency in that. If you're a newly married couple and you come and see me after six months of marriage and I say, well, you need to work at your marriage. They don't need to work at being married. They, they are married. They're a married couple. That's not going to change. That's, that's something that's already happened. But now that they're married, they need to work at something. They need to work at this marriage. And you know that a, that a marriage is a life of exploration and effort and discovery and discipline. And like a marriage, our salvation requires personal responsibility, personal effort. Here, Paul's emphasis, work out your own salvation. He's trying to drill into the heart of every individual here. It is your responsibility to keep your stream. It's not my responsibility. It's not the church's responsibility. It's not your small group's responsibility. It's not, it's not anybody else's responsibility. All those people can help you, but you're the only one who can work this out. You're the only one who can be the keeper of your stream. The, the word work out here means to carry to a, to a goal or to carry to the finish line. So it's not something you do once and then it's over. It's something you have to do your whole life. You have to run all the way through the tape sometimes if you're, if you're a track person. Run, run all the way through. Don't stop somewhere before you get to the end. And I was remember now, now a long time ago, I ran a 10K, which I wouldn't want to do this morning. But when I ran this, it was the Cooper River Bridge down in Charleston. And, it, you know, it's a, it's a nice bridge when you drive, off of it, drive, drive over it. But when you want to run over it, you want to run off of it is what I felt like doing. And so you run across this big bridge and you come down into sort of Charleston Central. And, of course, they're guiding you through, you know, the city to the finish line. And, and I came around this corner with, you know, a number of other runners and I could see maybe four or five blocks ahead this great big banner. And I was like, praise the Lord, it's the finish line, right? And so I kind of pick up some steam, which didn't look like much, but it was something for me. And I'm running towards the banner, and I get a block away, and I realize it's an advertisement for a bank. And I'm like, no way, no way. This isn't the last turn. And I thought that was so cruel because I knew some people were in a building watching people like me. And I couldn't tell you how tempted I was at that point to stop, to not run to the finish line. This, this fake finish line had put before me and had all my mental energy, all my physical energy, all my emotional energy to say, hey, this is the end. This is the tape that I'm going to cross and then I'm going to be done. And I wonder if 2020 seems like a series of fake finish lines for you. You just keep thinking, do you not? 
okay, this is the end. When they finally get to this point, when the election is finally over, when it, I mean, I remember in March thinking, oh, when June 1st comes, COVID's going to be gone. I mean, how many fake finish lines have you had to face in 2020? And if you fake too, if you have to face too many fake finishes, finish lines after a while, it's, it's tiring to go forward. You might have personal issues that have been exhausting or school issues or financial issues or the election or issues around race or COVID, which everybody's been, been under. It's been mentally exhausting, and perhaps somewhere in 2020, you got to one of these sort of fake finish lines and thought, I just can't go any further. You stopped. Perhaps this morning you feel like I'm just not even in the race anymore. And the Apostle Paul, he doesn't want to see that happen. He understands the difficulty that this little small church is going to face, and they're in this particular difficulty because he's in prison. And he doesn't want his imprisonment to be discouraging. So he's coming in like this coach from the sideline, like these people who are cheering from the side saying, keep moving, keep moving. I mean, this, this isn't the finish line yet. Don't, don't give up. Don't sit down. Don't, don't stop. You know, one of the main reasons I kept running that day was there was a group of people who kept running with me. And boy, if you ever needed people who were going to keep running with you, this would have been a year to have it. I, ho- I hope you have it. I hope that you haven't somehow had to make it all on your own. And if you need somebody, you need to call the church and say, hey, I need some help. I'm running by myself. I've stopped. I've, I've gotten out of the race. I have some friends who are missionaries in China and one of the Chinese Christians that they know um, has recently been in prison for their faith. And they wrote to me this week as, as one of the people who prays for them and says, hey, this, this man was able to sneak a note out to his family. Here's what it said. Don't give up. Hold on to the faith. See, that, that helped me keep running this week. I thought, of all the frustrations I have, of all the little painful things that I have to try to figure out or face, it's, it's not prison in China. And this person is going to keep running. And if this brother that I'm not going to meet until he gets to heaven is going to keep running, then, then I'm going to keep running. And I hope that you have those kinds of people around because you're going to need them yourself and then they're going to need you. This is what we talked about in the, the people who are just joined. One day, you all are going to want to stop. And I hope that there's going to be some people around you who said, no, we're going to keep running this race. I mean, I know that looked like the finish line, but it's not the finish line. And one day, I'm going to stop, or somebody here is going to stop, and they're going to need you to say, hey, we're going to keep running to the finish line because you have to work out your own salvation. When you get to heaven, you're responsible for the stream of your soul. And you have to work it out. It takes effort. It takes discipline. And maybe you're someone here that feels like I've gotten stuck or I'm on the sidelines and you just would be helped today if somebody would pray for you and we want to 
to do that. So after the service is over, I'll be up here, Jeremy will be up here, and it just would be helpful for you to kind of restart. We want to pray for you after the service. Second reactions to Jesus. The first is you've got to work out. You've got to work out your own salvation. You've got to have a group of people. You've got to trust in Jesus that he's working things in you that he wants you to work out. And the second reaction to Jesus' life, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Oh, man. I mean, you just want me to skip the point right here? Just say, let's end the sermon. That was pretty good before we get to verse Verse 14, I mean, 2020, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And notice how inclusive Paul's statement is, all things. He's not giving any kind of pass like, oh, well, now that I know that, you can grumble. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the kind of person in any kind of situation, even if they're having to be obedient to death, our model, they're not a person who's complaining. And I want to make sure that we understand that grumbling is, is no small sin. In fact, it's extremely toxic to your soul. And that's why I chose Numbers 14. I wonder if you've ever thought, if I could just see the miracles of God firsthand. And it just there would be no mistaking it. You would just say, that's, I mean, like the parting of the Red Sea. I mean, there's just no way I could mistake God didn't do that. And if I could just have, like, God's direct intervention to say, today we're going here, and tomorrow we're going there, then I wouldn't complain. Have you ever thought that? Boy, you would be so wrong. You would be so wrong because that's exactly what these people have. They've seen all kinds of incredible miracles. I mean, some of the most incredible miracles in all of the Bible. These are people who walked through the sea that had been parted. These are the people who had gotten manna from heaven. These are the people who would seen water come from a rock. These are the people who said, well, God, when you're a pillar of fire and you're moving, or if you're a cloud uh, by day and you're moving, then we know when to move. They had all of that access to them, but they were grumblers. They were complainers. And it's not a small sin. You notice in chapter 14, verse 11 and 12, God comes to Moses after he watches this complaint. How long will these people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all these signs, I'm going to strike them down with a pestilence. And thankfully, they have somebody who comes in like Moses and says, let's not do it that way. This grumbling was costly for a generation. Because that generation spent the next 40 years in the desert. And God was ready a new generation to come into the promised land. The New Testament takes grumbling seriously. Do not grumble, James says, against one another, brothers, so that you, not, you will not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So when was the last time you complained? Two months ago? I think it was on a Tuesday, but I can't quite remember. Was it a week ago? Was it yesterday? Was it this morning? Is it right now? 
See, for some people, complaining is a primary means of communication. I mean, if you didn't have complaining, there would be virtually no communication because that's just the way I communicate. You wake up in the morning and you're grumbling about the day ahead. You go to bed, you're grumbling about the day you just left. And without noticing any contradiction, you grumble about the people who, who grumble. You've heard the phrase, there are two kinds of people in the world, one who spreads happiness wherever they go and one who spreads happiness whenever they go. <laughs> and so I just wonder, trying to grab your attention to wonder if you're a grumbler. If you're a complainer, it's not a small thing. Jesus says, out of a heart, a man speaks. So what, what Jesus is trying to help us understand, what Paul is trying to help us understand is if it's coming out of your mouth, it displays what's in your soul. You're, you're giving forth your stream as you open up your mouth. And if you're opening up with complaints and grumbling, you're toxic. And you're spilling that toxicness onto other people. Now, I just want us to help us see two things here before we close. Two things, there's more, but two things that grumbling reveals. First of all, grumbling says, I deserve better. See, grumbling sticks you in the center of the universe, which is the very opposite of what Paul's trying to get at in verses 6 through 8. It, it makes everything about you. You say in your mind, I'm not the kind of person who should have slow-moving people in front of me in a line. I mean, I don't deserve that. I've come to a line. I've got things to do. And these stupid people in front of me who can't figure it out, I'm not the kind of person who deserves to be in a line like that. I was at Walmart this week. This is a little bit of an aside, but at the checkout. You know, now it's every, you have to check yourself out, which is fine. So I'm checking out, and I had maybe four or five of these plastic bags, right? And I, think, I honestly think it was a cruel joke that somebody played, whoever makes these plastic bags. But, you know, there's, there's the, the loops on each side, so you can grab a lot of bags, you know, with two or three fingers. Well, on one side, there was no loop. Oh, grumbling, oh, grumbling. It was coming out. Because here I am trying to grab all these bags. They all have one loop, right? So they're all spilling out. And joy did not come forth from the spring of my heart at that moment. See, I'm not the kind of person who deserves that. I'm a different kind of person. That's, that's what, how I'm informing myself in order to be able to rightfully grumble. I shouldn't have children or parents or bosses or politicians or people in the church who disagree with me. I just shouldn't have that because I deserve something different. I shouldn't have bad drivers on the road at the same time I'm driving. Do you see how every time you find a way to complain, it's a way to say, I'm at the center of the universe, and that's the most important thing. And when you say that, you're spilling out toxins. Worse than that, Grumbling doesn't just say, I deserve better. It says, I know better. 
if I was the ruler of my world, I wouldn't let this thing happen to me. And so you bring God in the courtroom of your own heart and you say, you're not doing a very good job. I don't just deserve better. I know better. You see, that's, that's what happened. That's what's happening in Numbers 14. God, we know better. We know when it's time for us to enter the promised land. We know what kind of conditions that we deserve. We know all this stuff, and we're heading back to Egypt. And the worst part in my mind of all of this grumbling is verse 15. Do all things without grumbling or questioning so that, in other words, here's the, con the connector to that. So this non-grumbling, non-questioning person who even though they're going through difficult times, they're going to be blameless and innocent children of God without a blemish because they've been thrown upon this canopy of the crooked and, cro crooked and twisted generation and they're going to shine like stars in the universe. You see, that's the whole point Paul's trying to make is when you're coming under a year like 2020 and you have one moment after another to complain, the whole world's living underneath this darkness and God's trying to throw out like stars people who've been fueled by Jesus who can say, even though it's dark, I'm still not going to complain because I trust God's in control and instead of that you don't leak out light you leak out darkness you're like an ink pen on a white shirt that pops and the very people that God has brought together to live in a year like 2020 it's you it's not other people it's you it's you who are planted in your, in your workplace. It's you who are planted in your home. It's you who are planted in your neighborhood. It's you who are planted in your school. And when everyone else is complaining because that's the sport and that's what's on television and you say, I trust in a sovereign God, then you get a chance to shine. But when you join in and then you say it's no big deal, people who could otherwise see Jesus, can't see them because of you. You're spilling out darkness and blocking the light of Christ. You and I have seen something. We've experienced the life, the birth, the life and death of Christ in ourselves. And therefore, we have a certain manner of life that we want to be personally engaged in. We want to work out. And part of that working out is what works out of your heart and out of your mouth. So what's leaking out of you here at the end of 2020? Have you just stopped the race? And now you're just complaining. Or where would you go if you're that kind of person? You say, I haven't been a good keeper of my soul. It's a whole other sermon.
but at least, verse 16, you would hold on to the word of life. You wouldn't be holding on to your word. You wouldn't be holding on to CNN's word or Fox News' word. You wouldn't be holding on to somebody, neighbor's word. You wouldn't be holding on to a podcast word. You wouldn't be holding on professor's word. You would be holding on to the word of life. And when that life gets a hold of you, light, light comes out of you. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a convicting word. Especially in this time that has seemed to be more dark than years past. And this has been a moment, and maybe we've missed this moment, and we need to confess. But there'll be more moments going forward that we get a chance. To, even if we live in prison, to hand a note out and say, don't give up. Hold fast. Lord, for those people who are finding themselves tired and weary, would you strengthen their souls today with, with this time of being together, this word, a prayer, your people. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.